This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino, the The Big Big Dinosaur Dinosaur Podcast. Podcast where we cover news, interviews, and discussions of all things dinosaur. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today we'll be talking about Megalosaurus. And since we had to record this podcast earlier than usual, rather than having the news, I have an in-depth review on the American Museum of Natural History and all the awesome stuff that you can see there. And just a reminder, we have our Patreon page which is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash I know dino, where you can donate to our show if you like what you hear. And thanks again to all our Patreon supporters. All right, so I'm just going to jump right into this review. So if you're not familiar with the American Museum of Natural History, it's located in Manhattan in New York, New York in the U.S. The dinosaur area is actually split into three parts in the museum, There's the Hall of Ornithischian, or Ornithischian, I'm still not really sure which way it is, dinosaurs, the Hall of Saurischian dinosaurs, and the Miriam and Ira D. Wallach Orientation Center. So in the Hall of Ornithischian dinosaurs, you can explore two branches of evolution within the group, and the whole dinosaur area is actually kind of laid out in a phylogenetic evolutionary path, so it's really neat. A lot of museums kind of Put things that look similar together, so they might put a dimetrodon in with some dinosaurs or something like that. But in this case, it's very clear and it's laid out in a really neat way. The Hall of Ornithischian Dinosaurs has the two groups. There's Genosauria, which is technically the group with inset tooth rows that form cheeks. And I think we've called these cheek teeth in the past. And it includes Stegosaurus, Ankylosaurus, and Seropoda. And then they have a separate section for that Seropoda group, which is inside the Genosauria. And its name comes as a combination of Ceratopsia and Ornithopoda, resulting in the really unfortunate literal translation of horned feet. But it includes Triceratops, Parasaurolophus, and Pachycephalosaurus, and lots of other well-known dinosaurs. And they're identified by an uneven covering of their tooth enamel kind of how these things often go. They're unusual classifications that make a lot of sense evolutionarily, but by looking at them, you'd never guess that's how they're in the same group. The two halls feature about 100 specimens, and a staggering 85% of everything you see is a real fossil and not a cast, which is incredibly impressive to me. If you go to some smaller museums, sometimes they don't have any real dinosaur bones, and it's just casts and replicas everywhere. So the fact that 85% of it is real is really impressive to me. There's also a Corythosaurus, the duck-billed dinosaur with a crest on its head. The specimen that they have is actually in amazing condition, and it's mounted on a wall and includes preserved skin impressions and calcified tendons. They also have what they call a dinosaur mummy, 
which is a fossilized imprint of the carcass of a duckbill dinosaur, as well as the accompanying skeleton. And it's one of the most complete pieces of Mesozoic dinosaur remains ever found, according to the museum. There's also a Cetacosaurus, which is this strange small dinosaur with little horn-like protrusions from its cheeks. And that one always strikes me as especially interesting in the museum. But as is typically the case, the Cerritians steal the show in the Hall of Cerritian Dinosaurs. The centerpiece is the imposing T-Rex. And Sabrina mentioned in the past that in 1915, when they unveiled it as the first complete T-Rex on display, they posed it standing upright and it stood in this upright pose for 77 years until 1992 when it was rearranged into a more accurate stance. And they even raised one of its feet to put it in a quote-unquote stalking position just to make it look a little bit more intimidating if it wasn't scary enough. They also have the holotype of a T-Rex, which was based on a partial skull and skeleton, but I'm not sure if that one's on display. I don't remember seeing it there. In the same room is a great Apatosaurus specimen, and that was actually the first sauropod dinosaur that was ever mounted way back in 1905. And this specimen infamously had the wrong skull on it for many years. But now that an Apatosaurus skull has actually been found, the specimen has a more accurate replica for a head. Beneath the Apatosaurus is the Glen Rose Trackway, which is a 107 million year old set of fossilized dinosaur footprints. They were recovered from Texas in 1938 and include smaller prints from a theropod and larger ones from a sauropod. The tracks are truly awe-inspiring since they show just how enormous and deep the tracks that sauropods left could be, and the way the tracks are set below a mounted sauropod makes it all the more interesting. It's one of my favorite parts, and it's really easy to overlook because if you're just looking up at the dinosaur, you might not even notice this trackway below it. There's also an Allosaurus, a Coelophysis, several theropod skulls, a nesting oviraptorid female, which is also pretty rare. And the arms of what I think is a Dinochirus, we talked about that one with its huge claw arms, and everybody for a long time thought it was this imposing monster theropod, but it turned out to be this weird humpback, like Jar Jar Binks type dinosaur. And then there's also this awesome leaping Dinochirus in a mid-leap pose. So the last area is that Miriam and Ira D. Wallach Orientation Center, and it has a sauropod model in the middle of it, as well as lots of other displays and a video narrated by Meryl Streep explaining vertebrate evolution. And so when you walk through the other areas, you can see other animals. Throughout the halls, there are also displays recreating dig sites, lots of interactive electronic displays, bones that you can touch, some really neat visualizations of dinosaur phylogeny, and one time we were there, there was a green screen area where you could pretend like you were being chased by a dinosaur also. Interestingly, the museum features the world's tallest freestanding dinosaur mount, but it's actually nowhere near the other dinosaurs. It's located in the Theodore Roosevelt Rotunda, which is basically this huge lobby, and it features a Barosaurus rearing up to defend its young against an Allosaurus. The uh, American Museum of Natural History just created an official app called, quote, Dinosaurs, American Museum of Natural History Collections. And I had to download it to see what it was all about. 
The main part of it is a mosaic that contains more than 800 photos and renderings from the museum's archive that are combined into a T-Rex skull. If you've ever seen one of those pictures where they combine a bunch of pictures really small and then it makes up a bigger picture, it's one of those things. And then you can zoom in onto each individual photo and click on it and it'll give you more information about where the fossil was found and who discovered it and what it's all about. In a promotional video for the app, they actually say, quote, discover fun facts and stories about the museum's popular dinosaur fossils, end quote. So since I'm into fun facts, I had to check out some of these. And one of the fossils is a pair of dinosaur skeletons called the fighting dinosaurs. And it shows a velociraptor and protoceratops that were locked together in the fossilization process. And even though the fossil isn't particularly large, and if you don't know what it is, not that exciting to look at, when you think about the fact that this protoceratops and velociraptor were somehow fossilized attacking each other, and then it managed to survive 100 million years so that we could later find it, I think it's one of the most impressive fossils they have. And I should also mention a few key non-dinosaur areas that they have in the museum, because we all love dinosaurs, but it's probably not our only interest. Yeah, and the museum is huge. You could easily spend an entire day or more in there. Yeah, I think the dinosaur section is on the third floor of four floors, and it's not even the whole floor, so there's a lot of other stuff going on. So my other favorite areas of the museum, because we have been there many times, are the Hall of Meteorites, the Hall of Minerals, and the Gem Hall that includes the Star of India, which is a 563-carat blue star sapphire and more than 100,000 other minerals and gems. There's the Hall of Animals, anthropology exhibits, a planetarium, a fascinating, quote, hall of biodiversity that just has tons of animals and reproductions all over the place and kind of descriptions of how things evolved. There are several other exhibits of mammals, archaeology of extinct non-dinosaurs, and a whole area just of birds. So if you're into modern dinosaurs, you can check that out. There's also a hall of the North American forests that includes a slice of a 1,400-year-old sequoia, and then they've put a timeline on it with world events that's really fun to look at. And, of course, there's the hall of ocean life, complete with its 94-foot-long fiberglass replica of a female blue whale that's suspended from the ceiling, and then tons of other exhibits around it. So all of this makes it probably my favorite museum in the world. And even though it is a little bit tricky to get to, Parking can be a little bit difficult around there, and driving to Manhattan is always difficult. You can take a train. It actually has its own train stop on the subway line in New York. And you can tell that it's the train stop because it's specifically decorated for the museum. Yeah, there's lots of paintings of dinosaurs down in the subway. And there's also its own cafeteria that's pretty good and not too expensive, especially for New York prices. Especially for Upper West Side prices, specifically. <laughs> yeah. And... Tickets are $22 for general admission if you're going to a special exhibit and the planetarium and some of the other things, it goes all the way up to $35. But just a tip for anyone who's listening who might be living and working in New York City, there are a lot of corporations that have memberships to the museum and you can often get in for free. That's actually one of the reasons we were able to go so often is the company I worked for allowed me to go in for free along with up to five other people. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah, so we went to this museum all the time when we lived there. 
Yeah, so if you're in the area, definitely check it out. And if you're not in the area, but you happen to visit New York at some point, since it's a pretty popular tourist spot, you have to make sure you make it to this museum. It's definitely one of the top five dinosaur museums in the world. Yeah, and also just quickly throw in, they often have special exhibits for dinosaur. They have so much dinosaur material and history and everything there. We lived in nearish to there for a number of years and there were multiple like every year at least one special dinosaur exhibit, I think. One was featuring sauropods and how giant they were and had this really great interactive giant sauropod model that we could see how the heart worked and where the blood flowed and everything. And how it breathed and how it breathed the same way as a bird with the air sacs and everything. It was a really cool display. Mm -hmm. I know they had other special exhibits. We probably didn't make it to all of them, but about once a year, I think they had something focused on dinosaurs. Yeah. So definitely check it out. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. <laughs> and that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. <laughs> mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And now for our dinosaur of the day, Megalosaurus. Megalosaurus means great lizard. It comes from the late Middle Jurassic of Oxfordshire, England, though fossils from other areas have also been called Megalosaurus. And Megalosaurus bones were first found in 1676, although at the time they had no idea they were looking at a dinosaur bone. It was the lower part of a femur, and it was described by Robert Plott, a chemistry professor at the University of Oxford and the first curator of the Ashmolean Museum. 
and it was described as the thigh bone of a Roman war elephant. But later, he thought that it came from a giant human, such as one that was mentioned in the Bible. The bone is lost, but his illustration was so detailed that it has now been identified as Megalosaurus. The first time I read this, I was just so shocked that a dinosaur bone was actually discovered and described in detail back in 1676, because I always think of the first dinosaur discoveries coming in the mid-1800s, basically. So it's pretty impressive that way back then they were already starting to discover these things. Yeah. So Plot's description and illustration is the first illustration of a dinosaur that's been published. And as you can imagine, Megalosaurus has an interesting history when it comes to discovery and naming. Its first scientific name, technically, was from the 1700s by Richard Brooks, who looked at this piece of bone and called it Scrotum Humanum because he thought it looked like a scrotum. This is not a valid name anymore. It was validly named, and it was the first non-avian dinosaur to be validly named in 1824. And then it had a type species name, Megalosaurus bucklandi, named in 1827. So again, lots of history here. In 1815, John Kidd reported on a find of bones in the Stonesfield Quarry, where the Megalosaurus femur was found, and he reported of giant tetrapods, which William Buckland, a professor of geology at the University of Oxford and Dean of Christchurch, acquired. And Buckland was an interesting guy. He apparently had a pet bear that he liked to dress in academic robes. And he... What? <laughs> that's all I could find on it. I wish there were more details. <laughs> that is insane. <laughs> he had a table made with dinosaur droppings that people admired without realizing what they were. And he liked to eat whatever he could try, including panthers, crocodiles, and toasted mice. And he said that mole and blue bottle fly were the worst tasting animals. He's an interesting guy. <laughs> In 1818, French comparative anatomist Georges Cuvier visited Buckland and said that these bones came from a giant lizard-like creature. So Buckland and his friend William Coney Bear studied the fossils, and Coney Bear said they were from a, quote, huge lizard. This is in 1821. In 1822, James Parkinson, a physician, announced the name Megalosaurus and illustrated one of the teeth, and he said that Megalosaurus was 40 feet long and 8 feet tall. Buckland kept studying Megalosaurus in 1823, and his wife, Mary Moreland, drew the bones, which became the basis for his illustrating lithographies. And Buckland formally announced Megalosaurus in 1824. So James Parkinson just kind of announced it, but I guess to formally announce it, you need to describe it in a paper. So Buckland formally described the dinosaur in his paper, Notice on the Megalosaurosaur Great Fossil Lizard of Stonesfield, which was published in 1824 in the Geological Society of London. However, he did not provide a specific name, species name, and this was common in the early 19th century. The genus was considered to be more important than the species name. Yeah, and actually we do that all the time just in common speech about dinosaurs. We'll talk about Apatosaurus, but we don't even mention the species name. Mm -hmm. At the time, there were Orthodox Christians who had a problem with the existence of Megalosaurus. They said that suffering and death only came from original sin, and that it didn't make sense that they had this carnivorous creature that lived before humans. And some people said, well, Megalosaurus was probably originally a peaceful vegetarian, and that's how that happened. But Buckland said that 
No, actually, Megalosaurus helped end animal suffering by preying on only old and sick animals. Which is kind of interesting to think about. One, that this is a debate, and also the ways to explain it while also placating different people. In 1826, Ferdinand von Rittingengav named the species Megalosaurus coneybearii, but not many people use that name. Actually, in 1827, Gideon Mantell named it Megalosaurus bucklandi, and that's the name that people use today. Buckland thought that Megalosaurus was quadrupedal and an amphibian that looked like a giant lizard, though he did understand, based on the thigh bone, that it would have been more upright than sprawled. The idea that Megalosaurus and carnivorous dinosaurs in general were quadrupedal was challenged in 1859 with Compsognathus, and then again in 1870 with Eustreptospondylus. And so after, John Phillips made the first display of a theropod skeleton in Oxford, arranging Megalosaurus bones as bipedal. Megalosaurus is an important discovery. It is one of three genera that Richard Owen used in 1842 to name the group Dinosauria. The other two dinosaurs that inspired Dinosauria were Iguanodon and Hyleosaurus. Richard Owen directed a model made for the Crystal Palace in England, and Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins was commissioned to build Megalosaurus in 1852 for the Crystal Palace Park. This Megalosaurus had a hump on the shoulders, and even though now we know it's not correct, this model helps the public in England be aware that ancient reptiles lived. For a long time after being discovered, Megalosaurus was seen as the typical large carnivorous dinosaur, and it became a wastebasket taxon. I know we've talked a lot about that on this show. There were a lot of dinosaurs assigned to the genus, but that changed in the 20th century when scientists started restricting Megalosaurus to fossils found in England from the Jurassic period. But before this, any fossils that were found that they didn't have enough material to name a new genus, and this usually means that they found just a single tooth, was classified as Megalosaurus. And at one point, Megalosaurus, the genus, had the most species of any non-avian dinosaur, though a lot of them have been reclassified. I believe there's been more than 50 species that were at one time classified under Megalosaurus. Examples of the wastebasket taxon being used that are all based on just a single tooth include Megalosaurus insignis and Megalosaurus mariani. Dinosaurs that were originally Megalosaurus included Duryavenator, Magnosaurus, Dilophosaurus, and Carcharodontosaurus. There are a lot of other examples, but too many for us to name. Interestingly, Megalosaurus also has a lot of synonyms, and this is mostly because of the way it has been spelled in papers. In 1913, one author added a U and made the synonym Megalosaurus. In 1926, another paper misspelled Megalosaurus four times, creating four new synonyms, so it's Megalosaurus, Megalosaurus, Megalosaurns, and megalosaurus. And this happened again in 1964 when a G accidentally was replaced with a Q to make Mechalosaurus. Yeah, it's kind of funny because a lot of these dinosaur names like Carcharodontosaurus or Dinochirus and stuff seem a lot harder to spell than Megalosaurus. It's just Mega and then Losaurus. It's not... Maybe they were tired when they were writing their I papers. <laughs> Didn't proofread. <laughs> It's just funny that misspellings mean, well, that's a new name for it. <laughs> <laughs> 
In the late 20th and early 21st century, Ronan Allen and Dan Schur said that the fossils found in the same quarry as Megalosaurus may be multiple types of dinosaurs. Shocking. Some researchers said that there were no distinguishing characteristics between Megalosaurus and other relatives, making Megalosaurus a nomen dubium. But in 2008, Roger Benson and colleagues analyzed Megalosaurus and identified distinguishing characteristics in its lower jaw. So, take that, Megalosaurus skeptics. These characteristics include a wide longitudinal groove on the outer surface of the dentary, the third tooth socket not being enlarged, and tall interdental plates that reinforce the teeth. No complete skeleton of Megalosaurus has been found yet, but Benson published a detailed study of the known bones in 2010. The first researchers of Megalosaurus thought that it was a giant lizard 66 feet or 20 meters long. Richard Owen in 1842 said that it was 30 feet or 9 meters long and was quadrupedal. And nowadays it's thought to be 23 feet or 7 meters long and weighing 1.1 tons and being bipedal with a long tail from balance. Although uh, in some sources I saw that they said it was up to 30 feet or 9 meters long and 10 feet or 3 meters tall. Megalosaurus had short forelimbs, a large head, a lot of muscle, and long curved teeth. It was bipedal, it had a long tail, long hind limbs with three forward-facing toes, and short forelimbs with three digits each. Its large head was long and had dagger-like teeth, although not much is known about the skull. But they think the lower jaw was probably narrow. It was probably an apex predator. It may have hunted stegosaurs and sauropods. Early descriptions, interestingly, have it hunting Iguanodon, though we know that Iguanodon actually lived much later. But it may have killed sauropods, or it may have also been a scavenger. Megalosaurus has been in the media. Actually, the first mention of it was in Charles Dickens's serial novel, Bleak House, which was published between 1852 and 1853. And that's one of the first dinosaur references in literature. And here's the line that references it. Quote, as much mud in the streets as if the waters had but newly retired from the face of the earth, and it would not be wonderful to meet a megalosaurus 40 feet long or so, waddling like an elephantine lizard up Holborn Hill, end quote. Interestingly, William Buckland's son, Franklin Trevelyn Buckland, was one of the first people to come up with the idea that, hey, maybe dinosaurs gave rise to these dragon myths from medieval times, or that were based in medieval times. Although the Crystal Palace, the glass house, burned down in 1936, you can see Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins' Megalosaurus. It's been restored. And you can see the Megalosaurus statue in London in the neighborhood called Crystal Palace. Around the same time that Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins built the Megalosaurus statue, Edouard Rue drew the famous image of Megalosaurus and Iguanodon in a vicious battle. This is, however, very inaccurate, especially since Iguanodon was an herbivore, but still fun. And lastly, if you ever watched the TV show Dinosaurs, the Jim Henson show from the early 90s, Earl Sinclair is a megalosaurus. He's the father figure. So megalosaurus was a theropod and a titanuron. And titanure means stiff tails and is a clad that includes more theropods. The clad appeared in the earlier Middle Jurassic, but it wasn't named until 1986 by Jacques Gauthier. And it includes all theropods more closely related to modern birds than ceratosaurs. And our fun fact of the day, 
is that the paper that described the holotype of Tyrannosaurus rex also described another dinosaur called Dynamosaurus imperiosus, which were later determined to be the same species. Luckily, T-Rex was written earlier in the paper, making it the official name of the species. Otherwise, we would be walking around saying D-Imperiosis. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Don't forget, we're now on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash I Know Dino. Thanks for listening, and until next time. Good day.